loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. A word before we begin today, in the past month or so, those of us who live in the U.S. and its territories have experienced a tremendous amount of tragedy. Three hurricanes left many of us homeless or worse. A few days ago, hundreds of people were injured and 58 people killed by an assailant in Las Vegas for unknown and incomprehensible reasons. I felt the weight of all those events, both because of those directly affected and because I know, given what I do, that each person affected represents a web of others who care about them, love them, and will feel these losses deeply, too. Even as someone who daily confronts loss and grief, it's been overwhelming. Every day, my friends from Puerto Rico post updates about how difficult it is for their families to cope. The news is full of people from all of these disasters trying to pick up the pieces. All I can do so far is let it break my heart. That's always the first step in grief for me, just to feel it. And I know that solace, inspiration, and action will come sooner or often later, guiding my steps forward. I'd love to hear how these events are affecting you and those you love and what's supporting you to go forward. You can just go to the Good Grief page at Voice America, and there are links to many different ways to reach out to me. I'd really like to hear. We do better in community, so I'd really love to hear from you. Today I'm talking with Edgar Behrens. As a documentary filmmaker, Edgar's had a notable record of successful production in very stressful prison environments. Edgar's Academy Award-nominated documentary, Prison Terminal, has been shown in over 60 prisons in over 80 colleges, universities, and other community centers. Edgar takes great satisfaction in his ability to tackle large-scale problems within the American criminal justice system and present them on a very personal level so that the destructive impact of a dysfunctional correctional system can be made more palpable to the viewer. He took on the mission to document one of the few positive programs that exist today behind bars in hopes that other facilities will emulate the prisoner-run hospice program and instill much-needed dignity to dying in prison for all concerned. Edgar's currently social documentarian at the Jane Addams College of Social Work, Center for Social Policy and Research at the University of Illinois at Chicago. You can find him at prisonterminal.com. Welcome, Edgar. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to have you. Your your film had had such a deep impact on me. I've I've been, um, you know, over the last period of time, just um, informing myself better about. Um, incarceration and what's led to the really staggering number of people that are that are in prisons and um, you know just just trying to <laughs> comprehend <laughs> the, yeah. the, the massive uh, losses that 
that go on. Um, but y- your film was such a humanizing one, and I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. I mean, I thought um, when I set out to make Prison Terminal, I, I felt um, that the the primary uh, mission was also to was to humanize the prisoner population because I feel that um, we are bombarded daily um, with hours of reality shows or prison shows or lockdown USA shows that that really um, sensationalize the prison population and, and in all reality yeah there are people like that in those shows um, but the vast majority of people in prison just simply are there they want to do their time and they're not they're really not that uh, as sensationalistic as they show in these shows so I felt it was first of all in, uh, imperative that we uh, that I like per, uh, humanize the prisoner population and to show that, you know, despite the horrible environment, which let's, let's face it, prison is, is a pretty horrible environment, that good mm-hmm. things can actually happen behind the walls. And this is one, one of the programs that really does is a highlight um, in the prison system. Absolutely, because uh, I, I had a, a friend who was incarcerated uh, uh, several years ago uh, for a few mm. years and she was in an o- an older um, age group mm. and uh, the prison where she was uh, had a special wing for aging um, aging people mm-hmm. and many of the people that she encountered there were going to be there the rest of their lives and so it really got me thinking about what that what that means when people are, um, you know, locked down and dying. Yeah, the, um, you know, the thing is, the, the, the thing, it's really hitting the fan right now because over the last two decades, if not more, we've been um, sentencing people, you know, really harsh sentencing and, you know, uh, three, three strikes are out, truth in sentencing, which basically um, keep people in prison, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and while at the time being tough on crime was the thing to do and, you know, people were being elected because they were tough on crime, the truth is no one had the foresight to look down the road saying like, you know, when, when these people get old, we're going to have a problem. And mm-hmm. that's what's happening now. We have one of the largest prison populations is the elderly prison population. Um, and, and, and now I think the system is taking a look at seeing like, oh, we've got a problem here. And even though um, my, my, one of my goals for the, for, in making the film was to, you know, show other prison systems that, hey, this is a hospice program that you can incorporate. It costs little to nothing. And this will actually uh, uh, help you deal with this problem. I mean, mm, I have to yes. say, Cheryl, uh, personally, I wish, um, you know, commutation or medical parole were more available um, or uh, the method that that system was more streamlined. Um, so if you are terminally ill, you can get out of prison and, and hopefully die with dignity with family and friends on the outside. But the truth is that that uh, system is not streamlined. And by the time you get your paperwork done and get it back from the state, you're most likely uh, died. You know? yes. So it's, it's a system yeah. that it just does not work very well for the terminally Absolutely. ill for sure. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Well, and even for the aging, for instance, she was uh, had a very severe hearing problem, and they had to put her in a special vest because otherwise, if she didn't hear the guard 
and mm-hmm. didn't respond, it could have been very, very dangerous. So oh, even yeah. things like that, um, uh, you know, d- it's just not set up for people who are um, declining in right, any you're way. Absolutely right. None of these prisons are really set up that way, and in a weird, in a shocking. Um, in a shocking way, there are some prisons now. I think there's one uh, down in Louisiana. They're actually building like nursing homes behind the walls because they're, um, again, they're not letting people out, even though they're, you know, they're elderly. Um, they'd much rather build a nursing home behind the walls. And I understand mm-hmm. why they're doing it to keep everyone grouped together. But it, it's also a sign of us as a society being kind of relentless in our in our pursuit of of punishment um you know you have someone who's terminally ill or extremely you know uh, uh, or old that and they are incapable of committing another crime and yet we still keep them behind the walls absolutely and i think this might be a good a good moment to get for the listeners to get to know jack a little bit the the main um the person in your film who was actually in the hospice program and being supported and is dying. Um, because I think, um, I know, I know from reading about the film that, um, there was a, a serendipity or accident in it being him. But I, but I do think that he supports this humanizing that we're talking about. Um, should we, should we, should we play that clip of him talking about his life? And Absolutely. is there anything you'd like to say before we do that? No, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll um, I'll comment after we hear the clip. Okay, good. Okay. Well, my name is George William Homo, nicknamed Jack. Me and my son's youngest son's living in Quincy. That's when that. Old boy got him on dope. He was about 14 years old. And he finally hung himself. And one day this dope dealer was bragging about how he made his money. He didn't make no more. I shocked him. So I got life up here. That was 21 years ago. I'll get out of here one of these days in a box. You know, of course, he moves me so much because his crime came out of grief. Exactly. He, um, he, his son, um, Jack, is was in prison because he murdered um, the drug dealer who started his son, his youngest son, in in drugs, and um, his youngest son eventually committed suicide. Um, and Jack, uh, one day while he was a free man, he overheard this drug dealer. Um, brag about how he made his money selling drugs and Jack being um, well I mean the background on Jack is he's also a World War II veteran um, so he felt that it was his duty to stop this drug dealer from uh, continuing his business and he did it um, I do not condone his murder obviously 
Uh, but I can understand why Jack Jack was angered to do that, um, and that's why he was in prison. He actually committed this crime when he was in his 60s. Um, I met Jack um, at the age of 84. He had COPD, and he just got back from being at the um, offsite at a state hospital, and um, he was back in the infirmary. And he bounced back, but he was um, slowly, um, his health condition was getting worse. So um, it was basically happenstance, like you said earlier. I was at this prison at the Iowa State Penitentiary. Um, I was given permission to be there up to a year, uh, 24-7, to uh, had access to the entire infirmary as well as the entire maximum security prison. And um, the first two months I was there, I, uh, there was nobody actually in hospice. They set up two beautiful rooms as you you can see in the film, uh, the hospice volunteers set up these two rooms in the prison infirmary uh, solely for the hospice program. And my first two months in prison, there was nobody in hospice, which does happen. Sometimes there's a lot of people and suddenly there's nobody for quite some time. Sure. Um, and Jack um, was a kind of a long-termer in that infirmary in the prison. And I got to know him over the first two months uh, just talking. I mean, I hung out in in the infirmary 15 to 18 hours a day. Um, so everyone got to know me. I work alone, so I think it's a lot easier for people to get to know me, get used to the camera, um, and for me to get to know them and bond with them. And Jack and I were pretty fast friends um, from the from the get-go. Um, and I didn't know he was going to be eventually in hospice. He was the oldest inmate in Iowa, um, but still he was pretty strong guy, even at 84. Being a World War II vet, I, I think he just had so much stamina. <laughs> he was amazing. <laughs> a toughie, huh? <laughs> Physically speaking. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so when it, when, it, when it became apparent that he was going to be the next hospice patient, um, he, you know, he already knew why I was in, in prison to do a documentary about the hospice program, and he agreed to let me film his entire you know, trajectory um, from you know, initial diagnosis to the last breath he took. Um, and his family was all, they were also on board and I, you know, I'm very grateful for his family and, and for Jack to allow me to be there at this moment in their lives. Um, and, and for Jack, it was really a no brainer. He felt like at least he was going to be able to leave a legacy for other inmates who were in the same position of, uh, not getting commutation and basically dying in prison. And with yes. this uh, hospice program they had, at least he had the opportunity to be surrounded by friends and family in, in the last moments of his life. We'll, we'll get around to talking about the, the friends part because mm-hmm. um, I was so um, captivated by, you know, other inmates and the way that they took care of him. Really mm-hmm. so, so beautiful. But I was also thinking uh, as I was watching, and we just have a couple minutes left, but we can get started on this, I think. Uh, I sing in prisons, as I was mentioning before the show, with my choir. And, um, boy, we can't talk to anybody. We're not supposed to look at anyone. We're not even really supposed to smile when we go to the (laughs) the prisons to sing. I mean, it's very controlled. And... um, I was so stunned to watch your film and the amount of access you got. And I was so curious how you were able to bring that about, because uh, at least in the in the prisons I've been in, that's just it's hard to fathom, actually. 
Right. You know, I have to tell you, I, um, I, I lucked out in a sense, but it, um, I made a film about a prison hospice um, down in Louisiana in Angola in the mid-90s, in the late 90s. And um, I was working for a foundation in New York City. Um, and after I finished that short film, it was kind of a nuts and bolts film on how to set up prison hospice. So that was kind of when I, I first started becoming aware of the hospice movement in prison. And that film, because the foundation I was working for had plenty of money, we sent out hundreds of VHS tapes um, to correctional facilities around the country. Long story short, I always wanted to revisit this topic. So 15 years later, I'm living in Chicago, and I, I start doing a little homework about, around the Midwest to see if there's a hospice program in any prisons. I find the one in Iowa. I go there kind of cold turkey and ask to, if I could make a documentary about their new prison hospice because it was like a one year old at the time. And to my amazement, they were using my earlier film as a training tool for their hospice workers. Oh, so my goodness. This, yeah, this, <laughs> I, I, it was com unbeknownst to me. And they were already using that film and another film I made about families dealing with incarceration. So they were using two of my films in their education program. So I was given carte blanche because they already knew my work and they already trusted me, which I have to tell you, I pinched myself every morning when I was in prison to see if this was actually true. As a filmmaker, to have access to a prison um, like that for 24 hours, uh, seven days a week for up to a year was, was amazing. And I, it's, I don't know if I can actually do that again. <laughs> just because everything's <laughs> a little different. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and and when we get back from the break, I really want to talk about the impact on you of that year and okay. um and just what it was what it was like to do it um because it, that has to be a a pretty big experience too. So let's it talk was. about that when we get back. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, etc. Sign up for my email list and to find out more about this film and Edgar Barron's go to prisonterminal.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, and I'm speaking with Edgar Behrens, whose film, Prison Terminal, documents the end of life of a prisoner in uh, Iowa State Penitentiary and um, exemplifies the hospice program there, which prisoners uh, participate in. And uh, Edgar, before the break, I was we were talking about how much access, what an incredible amount of, of access um, you received mm-hmm. at the at the prison, and I I know from you know reading up on you that you got an apartment across the street. I guess I mean you really were completely immersed, which is to me um, amazing that 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 was possible in that setting. And then of course I kept thinking, how was that for you? You said you didn't even have a camera person, huh? Oh, no, I usually, I don't usually, I, you know, I've learned from past experiences that, you know, I love shooting, I have a good eye, and uh, I'd much rather be just on my own, so if I do screw up, no one can see me screwing up, <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, it's just, it's just, I feel much, it's a lot easier to be in a prison also without a lot of people, because uh, too many personalities and too much clearances, it just, it just gums up the work, so I've been pretty successful in getting access being a solo filmmaker. Um, you know, it's, I'm only one person. That's all I have to get to know. I, I should also say it wasn't just me that got my that got me into that prison. I have to give kudos to the director of nursing at the time. Her name is Marilyn Sales, and she um, has since retired. But she was in the system for about 30 years as a director of nursing there. And I have to say, if it wasn't for Marilyn, who is a bulldog. Uh, to get me in that prison, it, I would not have been in that prison either. Uh, she, you know, and she was also the founder of the of the hospice program, and you, you see her in the film. Um, and she is the she really made things happen in that prison. Um, uh, you know, in in a, in a system that is somewhat dysfunctional, and if you want a program like this to get put through, sometimes you need someone on your side like Marilyn who kind of knows the buttons to push and the favors to ask, and you know, and makes these things happen. And without her help, I don't think I would have been able to to get in that prison. But you know, I have to say, once I got in, they were very they were very accommodating. I actually did not get an apartment. Uh, well, actually, it was an apartment. They gave me the basement across the street where the doctors live during the week. Oh. Um, there was a basement um, that was not being used uh, where the laundry facilities were, and there was a little room there. So they said, yeah, just throw not a Not quite an apartment there. then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A room. A, loft, <laughs> a basement apartment. Uh-huh. But, you know, they, you know, I stayed there for, for, uh, for the entire time I was shooting, um, and they were so accommodating, and that was literally across the street. So anytime I needed to be in the prison, you know, whatever time, you know, things happen around the clock sometimes in the infirmary, um, 
I could just walk across the street and, and go right into the prison. So it was an ideal situation. Um, but that said, you asked about how the filming kind of took its toll personally on me. And I have to say, I made some wonderful friends while I was there, the medical staff, even the prisoners who I'm still in contact with to this day. Um, and even though I was documenting a wonderful program uh, that was worth documenting and celebrating, the prison environment is is simply soul sucking, and I, I don't know how people can you know work twenty years in prison and it not affect them. I mean, it just affected me more than I ever thought possible um, on a personal level. Uh, you know, I, I got to know a lot of the prisoners there. They're they're dear friends of mine, despite what they did. Um, and, uh, you know, every night I could get out of the prison and, um, it's a small town where I filmed. It was Fort Madison, Iowa. And I was, I would jump on my mountain bike and just ride up my, my bicycle up and down the alleyways of the, of the little town along the Mississippi, just to kind of clear my mind and detox. Because even though I was documenting something beautiful, the environment was very, um, oppressive, obviously. And so it, it did take its toll. I slept very badly for <laughs> for months yeah. while I was there, and yeah. it, it was it was it was pretty uh, nerve wracking. But then again, I when I was filming, I felt I was getting stuff that was just like magic that people probably couldn't even imagine. Um, I have to tell you, I shot 300 hours while I was in there, and even though the film is only 40 minutes long, I have scenes just tender, tender scenes that never made it to the final film that would just, um, you know, it would make, they made me cry while I was filming. Um, and they, those are available actually on my, my website, prisonterminal.com. If people want to take a look at some of the scenes that were, um, not. In yeah, the I, I actually, I actually intended to mention that because I think that's amazing. That's so unusual. I have a daughter in film, so I know you usually don't see all those things that didn't make the film, you know, right. and, yeah. and the idea that that's available for people to watch is quite incredible to me. Well, as a, somebody who shoots, uh, who overshoots and who cuts, you know, I, the fact that I can actually show some of my favorite scenes, even though I know they're not in the final film, is, is, is I love it. I love that people are actually able to see more than, than, than just the film. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned the nurse who got this going, and I think we have a clip of her. Maybe, maybe it would be a good moment to... Uh, to play Wonderful. that. Yeah, that Marilyn Sales, uh, he's, she's a director of nursing, and um, she was the founder with, along with a group of, I think, 17 prisoners who said, yes, we can do this. Yeah, let's, let's hear that. Okay. It was a fact that when an inmate down here was sick and dying, they were placed in one of those rooms over there, so, so and nobody. there was nobody there, and... The nurse could come back when she had time, but there was nobody there. And I cannot stand that. I don't care where you are, nursing home, hospital, prison. That does not need to happen. So that's why I decided, okay, this is it. And I just didn't tell administration I was doing anything until I went to a meeting and I said, we now have a hospice. And this is what we're gonna do. One of the things that has come out of this is that the difference in the attitudes of the majority of the health services staff, all your health services staff ain't going to buy into hospice, don't ever think they are. 
isn't going to happen. Not in this lifetime. You're going to have nurses that are going to say, screw that, I don't want any part of it, we don't need to do it, it's more work for me, blah, 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 blah. They're going to do everything they can to make sure that the inmates who work back here pay a price. And so you've got to be on your toes to stop it. And I mean stop it in its tracks. You've got officers who will say, that's a waste of money, a waste of time. Well, it ain't your money, buddy. There's not one penny of state money back here. Not one penny. And I made sure of that. And so the best thing you can do for hospice is shut up. Just don't talk about it. I'm not asking for your support. Because this is going to be a fact. And it's going to work. You're not there. <laughs> okay, you want your head down a little bit? No, it's fine. Okay, now listen. This puts the head up. That puts the head down. This puts your feet up and your feet down. I don't want to come in here and find you all squashed. <laughs> all right? So I, there's enough support here, and that's one thing you've got to have. You can't have people that just talk nice about it. And people that say, oh, isn't this nice? You've got to have people who are going to go to bat and say, you're not fucking with this program. What a powerhouse. She is a powerhouse. And I tell you, um, she's right. I mean, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that every prison hospice get started the way she started it because she kind of started it without asking permission. And then like six months later, she thanked everybody in the newsletter for supporting the hospice program. <laughs> and it was already a little too late for everyone to say, hey, wait a second. So, but, you know, she... She, you know, you can tell by the way she's talking, she knows the system and she knew how to put things through. And, um, yeah, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, she would be the first to admit, hey, this is not my hospice program, because in prison, you need buy-in from the prisoners if they're going to have a program like this. Um, they just can't follow, you know, they just won't follow through if they don't really want this uh, prison hospice program. And they were they were convinced and they were certainly they certainly saw the need that a program like this was was uh was necessary in the, in the Iowa State Penitentiary so she got um 17 well she got about 40 people to volunteer and then they do have a uh, they do have a vetting process um but most of the people first guys in the prison hospice program were lifers they're honor lifers so they didn't have any infractions for the last 3 years um so they were kind of the cream of the crop and they were put through the same uh, community hospice volunteer coursework that I took, actually, to prep myself for the film. So they uh, brought in community hospice workers from Lee County, which is the county where Fort Madison is located, and they conducted class, uh, the class, uh, hospice classrooms, classwork, um, just as, as they would outside. And that was also great, because Marilyn saw that um, she needed community buy-in as well, so that the good stuff that was happening behind this penitentiary walls would kind of ripple out into the community. And, you know, they got good press from it. They got great word of mouth from the hospice volunteers who came in to teach. Um, and, you know, I have to say, it's one of the best programs of the um, 24 of them in the country right now. Um, they do some great work. 
I was I was also really aware watching the film, uh, having you know having done this this singing and done my own studying about um, mm-hmm. the way it is in prison, um, and and watching the amount of control you can't when we're doing concerts, for instance, we do gospel music. People are supposed to stand up for gospel music and dance. They're not allowed to, you know, for instance, not allowed to touch each other. Not, and so I was thinking about the impact of being able to be so human for the people that volunteered for the program um how uh how how big an effect that must have had on them it is it's huge cheryl i should tell you like when i show the film at prisons there are some prisons that they 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 want to you know there i should say there's 70 hospice prison hospice programs in the country of those 70 only 24 use the prisoner as a hospice volunteer and and a lot of those programs um allow the prisoner to touch the 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 patient um which you know Marilyn when she set this up she said like there is no way you can do hospice work without touching someone you have mm. to clean them you have to put lotion on their feet you have to put you know roll them over to change the sheet you have there is just no way you can do this i mean she didn't want a hospice program nor did the prisoners want a hospice program where they just sat next to somebody and even though it's wonderful and honorable to be sitting at someone's bedside maybe writing a letter for them or reading to them to get hands-on to be hands-on with your patient um, and to be trained fully trained to know what to do is amazing and this was an uh, opportunity for these men to be something they never thought they'd ever be um, and it was it, it was it's life-changing not only for the the inmate who's passing away to be touched and, and cared for with compassion and love. But the men who are the hospice volunteers, it is, uh, it's life-changing. For them, it's, um, I don't know, I'm getting chills right now thinking about it, because yeah. for them, it's something they've never thought they'd ever do. And it changes their life. And it, it kind of, you know, it ripples out into the yard, and it, um, it changes, uh, you know, the culture ever so slightly. I'm not saying it's a transformative, the whole yard is sure. a different place, but it does make a difference. And it also makes a difference on the staff because they see for the first time, hey, this guy's actually, this is amazing. I, I never thought this guy was worth anything. And here he is taking care of someone with love and compassion. So, you know, it, these are like tiny little changes that happen, little cracks here along the way, which I think is, well, it's the beginning of change. I know it takes a long time, but it's, it is the Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've interviewed several people who are involved in a restorative justice in one way or another. Uh, the people I've interviewed have have um, you know had a family member murdered. Mm-hmm. By and large, I think every guest that that works in that field has had that experience, and you know after of course grief and time. Um, came to work in the prisons in restorative justice and the human humanizing effect of seeing just seeing someone as a human being first of all Uh, that's that's not exactly how people think of all those two and a half million people in there that they're all people who did something you know um societally inappropriate or worse, but still human beings that have their own injuries and and um, stories. Yeah, uh, no, that's that's powerful work as well. The, yeah. Well, I, well, as I was watching the film, I was connecting them 
because um, that that sense of uh, being treated like a human being who can help another human being yeah. uh, is is very different than the way prisons operate by and large. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, in a weird way, it also, not in a weird way, you, know, you can see why, the prisoners who are hospice volunteers who are trained, they also, you know, by, by taking care of someone who's passing away, um, it also gave them a perspective of, like, what, they, what their crime may have, you know, has done to a family. They, to see someone pass away um, gave them they reflected on their crime and if it was involved murder or something it was it was amazing it was actually pretty uh rehabilitative and i wouldn't say i i just think it gave them a perspective that they also did not anticipate getting while they were in prison um so the benefits are just you know well, so much that, that's that sounds heart opening i guess is how i would put it that Absolutely. that um you know and of course that's kind of my my gear <laughs> How do we how do we open our hearts um, to all of the difficulties that life has to offer us? Um, so I'm very moved by what that must be like. Uh, and the other thing I noticed was how um, it must have been good training because the people that were uh, caring for Jack seemed mm-hmm. so. Um, present and comfortable. And I want to yeah. hear about, you know, them when we get back from the break. But that's what stood out to me, kind of very able to just go right there with him and, and face up to uh, what was happening to him, um, which some people not in prison have a hard time doing. So I want to hear more about that when we come back. Okay. And listeners, of course, you can go to the Good Grief host page. You can also go to my website, which is weatheringgrief.com. And to find Edgar Barons, go to prisonterminal.com. Back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that'll help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. 
You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Edgar Behrens, and we've been talking about his film, Prison Terminal. And and before the break, um, I was I was mentioning that I really noticed how um, open, I guess is another word for it, the people who were um, working in the hospice program were with Jack, uh, and in general, I guess. And um, that seemed very notable to me, was that that these particular people were that way naturally, or was it n- incredible training, or how do you uh, account for that? I think it might be a combo platter because um, I mean, the, the training was pretty incredible. I mean, I think they even got trained more than I did when <laughs> when I was in a community hospice, um, just because I think they, the the nursing staff at the penitentiary as well as the community hospice workers that came in from the community from the county, they just wanted to be thorough with these guys. I mean, they didn't, they also did not want the the program to, you know, anyone to mess up because, you know, a lot was riding on this. Um, there was a lot of people in the, uh, in the sidelines waiting for something to go wrong. And, and Maryland did not want someone to come up and say, I told you so. So they oh, were really, yeah. they were really well, well trained. And, and Maryland was, you know, she is no uh, holds barred. She says, look, if you, you know, these are the rules, and if you, uh, if you break one of those rules, you could plunge this entire project into, you know, into jeopardy. And that's the thing about prison. Um, even though this prison hospice program is one of the best in the country, it can also just be dissolved uh, if a new warden comes in and doesn't necessarily like the program, or if someone yes. retires and, um, you know, the, the, the program loses the spark. And, um, you know, it, and, and these, these programs are very fragile, uh, which is another one of my reasons to take the film around. Um, well, eventually I would hopefully get, legis- I hope legislation would be passed to make these pro- programs like mandatory so they don't they aren't so um, fragile and vulnerable when, when staff changes. That they should be a you know a, a fixed, a fixed a program in every prison that needs them. And uh, sadly, a lot of prisons do need these programs. I would I would imagine every single one on some level. Yeah, uh, I mean, because you know, I, I think it's across the board where, like, you know, commutation. Maybe your state, California, is making it a little more streamlined. Just because, let's face it, it's more mostly a, a, a financial reason why they're suddenly letting people out of prison. Um, right. Because, you know, an elderly prisoner, an elderly prisoner costs you know three to four times more to house than a, a young, uh, healthy prisoner. And the state is finding out that that is a bill that they don't like paying. Um, so you know, and the and the danger is lower as well. By absolutely, and large. I mean statistically, you know, if you once you're over fifty or sixty, the chances of you recommitting a crime are statistically extremely low. Um, right. But still, I think people are still scared, and and you know, politicians are scared also to let people out because there might be that one person that screws up that it really can ruin the whole thing for uh, many many more prisoners who could be out well and we could say in parentheses that's part of us wanting to control every detail of living which is pretty impossible but um, you mentioned that you still are uh, going um, 
many places to you you have a mission about this film it's not just a film you made uh you take it to places and show it yes i mean i you know when i was in film school back a long time ago <laughs> my my film uh, professor who was my mentor uh said something really important and it just never uh, i never forgot it he said like you can make a film and he was a documentary filmmaker too um he said you can make a film but and that's a, that's a, that's a difficult part of it but he says the next phase is the most important and that's to get the film out and to and make it make it live in society i mean what's the point of making this film and putting it on a shelf you need to go out there and show people actively show people uh something that they never would imagine and you know when i was thinking about making this film i, I had my friends and family would ask me like uh, what are you working on um now and i go well i'm making a film about prison hospice and they go what does that what does that mean i'm like well you know there's terminally ill prisoners who we do not let out who die in prison. And most of the time, prisoners die badly in prison. They either die alone in their cells or alone in the infirmary without a nurse nearby or alone shackled to a bed in a state hospital. And this program is a prison hospice that trains inmates to be hospice volunteers. And they are at the bedside and hopefully family as well is at the bedside of someone who is not getting out of prison, but who at least has the dignity uh, and the opportunity to have people around them as they pass away in prison. So, I mean, it, it's a, you know, a lot of people don't, don't, this is a new, you know, for a lot of people, this is something they never even thought about. So right. to get the film out there and to show it at like the universities and colleges and criminal justice uh, um, uh, colleges, it's just, it's been uh, fantastic because it's really showing people an aspect of prison life that they never, ever imagined. And, uh, you know, I, I happen to know you're coming to my home territory pretty soon. And maybe uh, even though a lot of listeners don't live near here, I mm -hmm. still think it's worth mentioning where it's where you're going to be showing it uh, in my neck of the woods in California. OK, yeah, I, I mean, actually, um, October 24th, which is a Tuesday, I'll be showing the film at the uh, UC SF um, School of Medicine. Um, that's Tuesday, October 24th from 6 to 8 p.m. And then uh, the next day, Wednesday, October 25th, I'll be at the Monterey Bay Justice Project, which is the California State uh, University of Monterey Bay. And that's at 6 p.m. on October 25th, which is a Wednesday. Um, I, in, in San Francisco, I'll be showing um, the film at Channing House, which is on Thursday, October 26th um, from 5.30 to 8 so those are the, fantastic. Uh, the, yeah, thank you. That's gonna be I, great. Let's let's play uh, another clip because I think it gives a flavor for the the guys who work in the program a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the one at the memorial. Yeah, this is a, a lot of people ask, like, okay, um, so these guys are trained in hospice care. What happens to them after their friends pass away? Because they, they see a lot of their friends pass away. They're next to them while they pass away. And um, uh, I always tell people, well, it's not in the final film, but this scene is um, a scene of the bereavement uh, um, uh, event that they have, usually about a week or so after a death. All the inmates who were volunteers, as well as just friends um, of the prisoner who passed away, are invited to go to a bereavement ceremony where they can 
talk about um, their friend who passed away, share funny stories, sad stories. And a lot of times the family members of the prisoner can also attend, which is uh, a miracle, really, when you think about it, where they're actually in the chapel in a maximum security prison and they're all sharing stories about their loved one who passed away. That that must be amazing, too, in the sense to know that there were people in there that cared about your person. Oh, absolutely. Even though, you know, yeah. And Cheryl, I have to say, I mean, there, you know, there are obviously bad people in prison. Um, but, you know, when you're in a place that long, you do you do create a family in there. So, you know, Jack, even though he was like 84, he was an elder in that prison and people respected him. And you have people that are like in their 30s or 40s talking about Jack as if he were their father figure. I mean, you do, mm. you know, we're humans. So I think we just, we kind of eke out a, a family wherever we are. If, if, if Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, so let's hear that. Okay. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for those that are gathered today to remember the men who we took care of in the hospice. We took care of them, Lord, but they gave so much to us that we could never repay them. They allowed us to, to be with them at a time when they were most vulnerable, Lord, and we thank you for that. These and all the things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When I would go see Angelo, he was in the last stages of cancer. He was told he didn't have much longer to live, and he knew this. And I take comfort knowing that he was with such wonderful people when he passed away, and that he's in a better place now. I'd just like to share one of his favorite quotes from a poet by the name of Ralph Waldo Emerson that he shared with me many years ago. And this embodies his entire being, it says. What lies behind us and what lies before us are but tiny matters compared to what lies within us. Thank you. It's a a great quote. (laughs) Yeah, it's very, that's a beautiful quote. (laughs) Yes, very beautiful. Um, you know, it's it's kind of. Rem- I heard I heard a story once about um, a mindfulness project in uh, prison, and th- there was a lot of resistance, like it was some kind of plum thing to give people, and you know, where's the punishment? The same things you're talking about, mm-hmm. and and what ended up happening is that the people in that program. Uh, their their attitudes and their ways of of relating changed so much that the guards realized, oh, this is actually helping us. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And as I was watching the film, I was having that same sort of feeling that um, the people who work in this program then take that energy that we just heard uh, and prayerfulness whether you're christian or not that man was very prayerful yeah and um and they take it back into their the rest of their uh lives i'm i'm sure it's very powerful and, and it emanates like i said earlier it really does ripple out and the the staff the correctional officers um 
you know, there is there is a, a softness that suddenly, and not in a negative way. I mean, they start realizing that, you know, um, you know, and you know, he, he, correctional officers, they don't want to be badasses 24-7. Well, some do, but <laughs> a lot of them don't. <laughs> they don't want to come to work and be, you know, uh, be aggressive and be negative. They, I mean, if they can be a part of this program or they can see a change happening within the population and they're actually, you know, able to see it and, and enlightened enough to, to, to verify it, then I think for them it's also a, a, it's a blessing to have a program like this um, in, in a prison. I mean, and other programs that are similar that have this humanity, this, this touch of dignity that is necessary in that, in that environment. Uh, like I said earlier, the prison environment um, is just so soul-sucking that, you know, anything positive that can come out of it is, is, is embraced, hopefully, by, by most. At least by enough that it makes a real, a real uh, impact and difference for the people that the many, I mean, millions of people are living in that environment every day. Um, some yeah. of whom will be released at some point, and then we definitely want... Uh, them to have experienced something human because then we'll be living with those people. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And, you're right. and people that are not coming out, um, that's their, li- that's their lives. That's the sum yeah. of their lives. So, um, it, it's what you do is very meaningful to me. I, I want to thank you for your work because it's well, not, it's not easy work. I'm sure. To, no, it's not easy. But, I mean, you know what? But it's, it's something that I feel like, I mean, you know, I, I, I love doing it. It is, difficult but it uh, the 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 payback is so you know when you see people and completely change their their outlook on things it's it's pretty gratifying to see that your film may have made a change you know and i've taken the film like you said over um, 60 prisons and some of those prisons have actually started hospice programs because the film was able to demystify the process somewhat i'm not saying it was the only thing um i should say that you know I, uh, about a month and a half ago um uh i went to san quentin and i was able to screen the film and because of uh, a project that's actually in san francisco the humane prison hospice project um they were able to uh get the event uh situated in san quentin we had a, a screening there uh, for all the the prisoners, and I think it may have um, uh, pushed them over the line where uh, San Quentin is now uh, actually, you know, putting the works in to do a prison to have a prison hospice there. That, that's um, and, a great great place to end for the day. That's near me, and I'm hoping I can get involved in some way or another because that's just fantastic. I've sung in that prison, and um, I'm, I'm really happy that's coming there. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Next week, I'll have Scott Stabile. He found his way to Big Love, the name of his new book, after grieving the murders of his parents when he was 14. He also found forgiveness for the man who took their lives, relevant to today's show, too. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.